Hi there, I'm Andy, a moon chasing, manifesting, wander lover, and feel good aficionado. Consider me your woo woo best friend. This show is a sacred space for ideas, concepts, and modalities that might be considered taboo, but that I personally find a great magic in. In these conversations, my mission is to inspire confidence, worth, and mystical thinking in our modern world. Let's get into it, shall we? Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the show. We are here on your Woo Woo BFF. I have a guest today and we're having a conversation about some topics that we really have not spent time on yet on this show. We're going to be talking about spiritual parenting. We'll be having a conversation about a modality, an education system, an education style that is based in spirituality. It's a spiritual-based education philosophy. It's called Waldorf education. You may have heard of it. If you're a parent, it may be something that's kind of buzzing around in the parenting circles that you are in. And maybe it's new to you. It definitely is something I'd heard a little bit about through conversations with mamas that are in my community. And I'm very interested in learning more about it. And my guest today is going to give us all the all the goods on this approach to education. We're also having a bit of a conversation about eating disorder recovery. My guest is an advocate for people through a healthy at every size lens. And she personally went through an eating disorder experience herself. And so we are going to be talking a bit about that. So I wanted to give you a heads up if that's something that might be triggering for you. I invite you to listen in and to allow yourself to connect into the conversation in whatever way feels good for you. So let me tell you a bit about Prem, my guest. Prem Ormanovich is a Houston, Texas native currently residing in upstate New York. She's a mama, an author, and of course, a Waldorf teacher, which is why we're getting into this topic today. She recently published her first book of poetry, a book called Knotted, which captures her journey through a chaotic childhood, eating disorder recovery, sexual abuse, motherhood, forgiveness, and healing. She's currently undergoing coach training with Light Your Leadership to further develop herself as a spiritual leader and to help people hone the power of their language and attention to set goals and a vision for their life. Prem is a longtime blogger and podcaster. She started her podcast and blog journey writing and talking about eating disorder recovery and intuitive eating. And she currently runs a motherhood podcast with her friend and mine as well, Carson Dupree, which is how we were connected, where they discuss all things woo-woo parenting. So let's get into it. I'm excited to share with you this conversation with my new friend, Prem. Here we go. Hello, Prem. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning, Andy. I'm so good. How are you? I am well. I am well. I am looking forward to this conversation. So you and I have been 
chatting a little bit before we got started about the topics we are going to spend some time on today. And Mm -hmm. it's going to get juicy. It's going to get going to get deep and juicy and we're going to talk about uh, quite a quite a variety of topics so I'm looking forward to it yeah I love deep and juicy so yeah (laughs) me me too me too okay so before we before we get going we always start with a bit of astrology on this show so if you can share with us your sun your moon and your rising sign and we have a running joke that everybody on this show is a Capricorn so I'm (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> now I get really excited. I'm like, Ooh, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Oh, I'm going to break the cycle. So okay, I'm, good. Aquarius. <laughs> I'm an Aquarius sun. Um, my birthday is the day after Valentine's day. Aww. And I remember as a kid feeling very jaded about that. Cause I would get all the like leftover Valentine's decorations, like at my mm-hmm. birthday party and stuff. Um, and I'm a Pisces moon and a Gemini rising. And I do actually have a few planets in Capricorn, um, but I have a lot of mostly air in my chart. So a lot, I have a lot of Gemini and Aquarius. Yeah. So much dreaminess, (laughs) so much dreaminess in your chart. Yeah. Yeah. It may, it makes sense. Yeah. We, (laughs) it'll line up. Yeah. It, it just, what I know about you thus far, it completely lines up and, (laughs) and I love that you're breaking the cycle. So we don't actually have to change the name of the show to your woo woo best friend. Woo woo conversations with Capricorns. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) Beautiful. Okay. So Prem, tell me a bit about your story. We're going to talk about quite a few topics today, but I'd love to just start with your story, a background on you. We had your podcasting partner, Carson, on early in in the show. She was one of our very first guests. And Carson mm-hmm. is obviously a friend of mine from my Nashville days. And so I know you have a beautiful podcast that you share with Carson. And so tell us about that. And then tell us about, just give us a bit about your story, your background. Yeah, so I was, um, I'm currently in the Hudson Valley in New York. And I was born in Westchester County on the other side of the river. And I was raised in Houston, Texas. So I lived there for like 28 years. And I actually moved to New York this last fall. Um, I went to public school. I had a very kind of, I was going to say generic, um, (laughs) Southern upbringing. You know, I played outside all day um, with my siblings. I'm one of four. And I actually went to culinary school for a bit um, after high school. And I was working at a fine dining restaurant um, in Houston and I was a grill and saute cook and I was so certain I wanted to be a chef. Um, and at the time I was also struggling with, um, an eating disorder and it looked so many different ways, um, throughout kind of the progression of it. And actually how Carson and I got connected is, um, so she's sister-in-law to a band that I love, the Isley, and they're all, you know, siblings, Um, And she's married to their youngest brother, Colin Dupree. And so I kind of found her through them when her and Colin first started dating. Um, And (laughs) sorry, Carson, if you're listening to this, you're like, why are you talking about my whole life? Anyway, so that's kind of how I got connected with her about she was had a blog at the time about her eating disorder. And it was the first time that I had seen someone really share about it publicly. Mm, And I was really inspired by that and um, felt very validated in having read a similar experience of someone that was close in age 
And because in those things, you know, us humans like to make it as if we were the only ones to have ever struggled with said thing, whatever it is. And so to be able to connect on that, it was really, um, that, that was a really profound experience in kind of launching me into recovery. Um, and then Carson and I crossed paths again when I got introduced to the Food Psych podcast that I highly recommend. And that also kind of launched my recovery journey um, as well. And so around that time, I also became pregnant with my older daughter, Zelda. And um, <laughs> she's a Scorpio. I just, we were talking about uh, spiritual parenting earlier, and that just reminded me of that. So anyway, um, so when I got pregnant with her, I just realized for me personally, working in the food industry just wasn't going to line up. Um, My colleague at the time wanted me to open a restaurant with him and come back six weeks postpartum. And uh, I just was like, no, I can't do that. Um, So I decided to stay home with her. And through that kind of journey of the first time not having a job in like ever my whole lifetime. Um, That's how I found Waldorf Education and our local Waldorf inspired school in Houston, Texas. Um, And I know we'll talk more about that too, but that's really kind of the broad strokes of my story, if you will, would be, you know, my, my time as a cook and also simultaneously in my eating disorder. Um, And then kind of coming out of that with becoming a mother. And, you know, I was also, I'm also stepmother and coming into this work as a teacher. And, um, I think that was really the kind of slow spiritual awakening, the very beginning of it. Got it. Yeah. We'll talk about all of these things. We'll talk about, (laughs) I want to talk about your experience as a Waldorf teacher and what that is. Cause, because I know as you and I were talking before the show started, before we started recording, it is something that perhaps people have heard about. It's a little bit of a buzzy word around in the education circles. And so I'd love to talk about that and the spiritual parenting piece too, you know, in full disclosure, Ben and I are having conversations now about potentially having a child and we have, I'm, I'm, we've, we've been through fertility testing and all sorts of stuff because I'm older. I'm, I'm past 40. So we're like working through what that's going to look like. And we all, we are also sitting down and going, okay, if we, what time of, do we want an Aries child? Do we want a Taurus child? And mostly it's like kind of a joke, but we're like, well, we know we, what would this be like? What would this be like? So oh my gosh, there's a yeah. little bit of that in the conversation going no, on. With Andy, us. I have to tell you that was a hundred percent of the conversation when we were deciding to have kids. Yeah. I was like, when we were having, when we were planning for Zelda planning, um, I was like, I want a Libra. Every Libra I've ever met is so nice. Uh, and I just yes. want a Libra. <laughs> and then I got a Scorpio. Yes. And then, yeah, that's the thing. That's the trick is like you you might be shooting for Aries and then you get a Taurus. I love a Taurus. Yeah. Ben is a Taurus. Do I want to live with two Tauruses? I don't think so. Yes. <laughs> I'm a and Taurus then, moon. Do I want three of us? I don't think so. And then when we were planning for Sage, my younger one, um, he my so my stepdaughter is a Leo and she is like Leo. And I remember being mm-hmm. like, Philip, I can't handle another Leo. And he's a Leo. 
so it's kind of it's just you said it's a joke but like I feel like the joke's on me for trying to control yeah. their birthdays I was like this is what I get right I get the opposite of yeah. what I want yeah, no, I think that that's right. It's like, it's a joke because the universe is going to do what the universe is going to do or God exactly. or source or whatever you call it. And so, yeah, we, we've been having the conversation and we we're like, okay, Aries would be lovely. But if you miss the window just slightly, then what happens? And then we're like, um, a cancer would be would be amazing. I'm a Leo son. And, and so we're like, but if you miss that window just slightly, then you get another Leo in the household. So... <laughs> Or maybe a Virgo. And I don't even know what mm. I would do with a Virgo. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 We're having that totally. exact same conversation. And the joke will be on us because ultimately they're going to choose what goes. they're going to choose when <laughs> right. they come to incarnate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not going to be up to us for sure. For <laughs> sure. So we'll talk a bit about spirituality and parenting. And then we'll definitely have some some chat time around your recovery process. And I'd love to hear a bit about that too. So let's, let's get into it. So let's start with, let's start with, let's talk about Waldorf and Waldorf education. So you are a Waldorf teacher, and that's a, mm -hmm. a, a background that you have and a training that you have from your experience in Houston. So tell us what is, what is a Waldorf education? What does that, what does that mean? What does it look like? What is it, what happens at a Waldorf school? So Waldorf education came out of the post-World War I um, Europe. Um, There's this impulse around alternative education at the time. And Waldorf education um, was started by a man named Rudolf Steiner, who's an Austrian um, philosopher. And there is a branch of philosophy called anthroposophy, which is kind of the bedrock of what Waldorf education is built on. So we don't teach anthroposophy to children. We don't, you know, indoctrinate them with anthroposophy. And yet anthroposophy is kind of the source that the teachers um, learn from and tap into. So when I say it's a spiritual education modality, that's how I think of it is that, I mean, every human being is a spiritual being and the teachers are really encouraged to have their own individual spiritual practice um, because we recognize that working with children and I'm, so I'm an early childhood certified Waldorf teacher, which is birth to seven um, is really a spiritual and soul giving. I, I almost want to say sacrifice. Um, you're really giving part of yourself in presence of this child and whoever they are, however they came to incarnate onto this earth plane. Um, and so to have that strong spiritual connection, like in and up, as I would say, um, helps us mm -hmm. be who we need to be and who we are for the child who they are. Um, and that's a, that's a little bit deeper. But so on the whole, Waldorf education really aims to educate the whole child and that often gets kind of deduced down to the head, the heart, and the hands. And we recognize that young children learn solely by imitation. So mm -hmm. um, I, when I was a kid, I remember hearing my parents say, like, do as I say, not as I do. Um, but that doesn't work. Young children bring everything from the outside world all the way in through their whole being and digest all of it and then bring it out. So if you see a child, like, watching a movie... And then an hour later, they're playing that same kind of game. 
that's what they're doing. That's really how they're processing and trying to understand everything, what they see out in nature, what they see on a screen, what they interact with in adults, what they hear from adults, all of that. They're really taking it through all of their senses. And so in Waldorf early childhood education, we try to connect children to the most natural experiences possible and kind of bring them away from the overstimulating world. So often what an early childhood Waldorf program looks like is um, a lot of outside time and um, freeform play. So the adults don't get involved in the play. It's child-led. So for instance, like my day as a kindergarten teacher this past year, um, I had a kindergarten and we were mostly outside. And I would greet the children and their parents in the morning. They would come in and play and they might build a structure with two by fours and some random branches that they found. And they would make cakes with mud and water or melted snow. And then we'd come together and we'd sing, um, we would do a circle. And another important piece I think to mention is that there's no direct academic instruction before the age of seven. Mm, so yeah. in Waldorf education, we recognize that any of that kind of, um, and this is where it can get a little controversial and where for me, when I first got introduced to it, I was like, whoa, like they don't learn to read until first grade. Like that's weird. Like I learned to read when I was five. Um, and young children can learn to read. But what I think Waldorf education is really aiming to do is to give them that space around their childhood to fully develop other aspects of their physical, mental, and emotional development because they have the rest of their lives to be educated in a formal way. Um, and I personally have just seen so many beautiful things come out of that for children um, when given this space in their younger years to really fully come into their bodies um, and have a really healthy sense of rhythm in their own bodies and have a sense of being able to regulate their own bodies and move through the world with confidence. And um, it's all because, you know, we let them climb a tree as, as high as they feel like they can climb and we let them kind of figure it out more or less. Um, there's And there's so much more I could say, but that's probably like the very broad strokes intro <laughs> into what yeah. world of education is. What I find to be interesting, and I'm sure there's a correlation somewhere in here is that so in when we consider how we are imprinted, in terms of the behaviors, the patterns, the belief system that we ultimately have as human beings, it's like 90%, I think something like that is the is the percentage 90% of our belief system is established before by the age of seven, by the age of mm. seven, like whatever it is that we believe to be true about ourselves, and our lens on the world, we have, we have received that by the age of seven. And so, and so as we as we enter into adulthood and we start to look at, you know, where we have specific uh, ideas about who we are and, and how the world works. And when we talk about that, and I'm using air quotes, that concept of limiting beliefs, mm. it typically comes from something that occurred between the ages of zero and seven. So when you're talking about, for example, that lessons like learning to read, 
aren't even happening until you're approaching that age. I don't know that I have a question, but I think I'm wondering what happens for a child when they're just given the opportunity to explore the world them in their own way and the way that they they so choose versus feeling that, that they have to that they have to meet a standard that's being set for them before they even really understand what that looks like. I think that that's what I'm, it's not really a question, but that's, that's rolling <laughs> through my mind. I, I think that's really interesting. Like yeah. the pressure of learning to read at age five, if that isn't, Ben and I talk all the time about, he's a, he's an incredibly gifted musician and his capacity for holding musical knowledge in his mind is wild like what he can do when he's in a room with instruments and he talks he's shared with with me how hard it was in kindergarten and first grade because he was being asked to sit down and do these mm. specific learning style tasks when all he wanted to do was he was already playing piano and guitar at age five because that was what he was he was drawn to and We've talked about that that set the standard or that set the tone for the, for his the rest of his schooling because he always felt that he was behind and he always felt that he was a bit troubled and and mm. understanding how to learn when in reality he was completely learning in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying and I think what Waldorf education really aims to do in that regard is support the child where they are rather than ask the child to be where we want them to be. Yeah. Um, and in the whole, so Waldorf education goes up to high school. There are Waldorf high schools in certain places. Um, and typically like the grades program looks like first through eighth grade and you stay with the same teacher. Um, and a huge part of the Waldorf um, pedagogy is, strings instruments at in third grade you play recorder and pentatonic flute in first grade um there's sculpture there's woodworking there's handwork there's uh world languages there's all these um rounded out things woven into the regular curriculum in the regular day that in public school my experience was like those are extra and like <laughs> those are you know um electives and things like that but Waldorf education really understands that those things are needed to support a whole um, rounded out human. And not that every one of those children are going to get like really get into woodworking or, you know, really get into music. But having those opportunities from a young age, I think, gives children the room to have that self-expression to really see what sticks from an early age and what how they can learn and express themselves. and especially in early childhood, I think it gives them space to be that child that wants to just, you know, go play drums on the tin cake pans in the play yard, you know? So without mm -hmm. that being wrong, without making them wrong for it. And I think what I, what I personally aim to do as an early childhood teacher, when I see a behavior in a child that, you know, could be labeled as in other settings, disruptive or misbehavior or whatever word you want to use 
I really look that for, I look at that as an invitation to see what's going on in their inner world and how they're experiencing the world. And mm-hmm. I really avoid these polarities of good and bad and right and wrong. And um, because children just don't, they're not out to just, you know, they they cannot have access to that malicious intent. They're just moving through the world the way that they're meant to move through. So if there's something that's causing a problem, I feel like it's really my responsibility to look and see, is there something that I am not giving them? Is there an opportunity that's being missed here? Um, or are they getting too much of something? Or maybe there's something in their biography that I can work with on their parents. So for me, I've just seen it to be a really healthy, well-rounded kind of offering for children to be exactly who they are. And I don't, I think, you know, just speaking personally, I think being in the public school system, there were so many opportunities where I didn't get to be who I was because I was busy being who I was supposed to be. And now right. we're unlearning a lot of that, or I'm unlearning a lot of that. Sure. And I think a lot of, you know, my peers are as well. And that's what a lot of this kind of impulse in our generation um, is coming from is a lot of unlearning rather than learning because our education paradigm was kind of backwards. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I'm very much like you in that way. I was, I've, and and I'm sure some of this is being that super achiever, people pleasing sort of, um, that, that archetype very much applies to who, who I am or who I was growing up. And so I, I did I did really well in school. I I could I could get my way through any standardized test and score at the top of the charts on those sorts of things mm-hmm. and that stuff was really important to me because I knew it was mostly because it was important to the people around me, my teachers, my parents. And so I was actually my parents were here visiting me this weekend and my dad said, he said, you know, I always thought you were going to be a filmmaker. I always thought that that's the direction you were going to go because when you were seven, eight, nine, ten, through like age 12, you always had the VHS camera and you were always crafting these stories. And of course, I remember that that was something I was really into back then. But he said, you know, you would always take my camera and you would get I have I'm like you, I'm one of four siblings and I'm I'm the oldest. And so Hmm. it was like you were always directing some sort of film where all the neighborhood kids were coming over and you were casting them in roles. And he was like, you were doing that by age seven. And so as he was sharing that with me, I was thinking, okay, so where along the way, if that's what I was so into for five years of my little little life, where did I, where did that leave me? Like, why, why didn't I, why wasn't that nurtured a bit further? Certainly not placing any blame on my parents for not nurturing it. They were certainly doing, they were doing all the things that they needed to do in in their lives. And I was, I was going to school and I was, you know, doing well in school. So there was probably not a thinking that I was missing something in any capacity. But I look at that and I think, okay, what, what if that had been nurtured? If it was clearly something I loved so much, why, where was that? Or why wasn't that plugged into my education or even considered when I was starting to make decisions about what I might study and college or my my next level of education after after high school and i i think that i so often and i'm sure you do i so often hear stories about oh when i was little what i wanted to be was x mm. and then i went to 
I went to college or I went to some sort of trade school or whatever it might be. And I did the thing that was on the, on the like list of good jobs to be pursuing. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. So for me, I remember very much being told that, well, I should be, my degree is in PR and uh, and I have a minor in biology because I was really great in the sciences, but I, I was told so many times that I should likely be in sales. I should be in sales. And as a kid, I was like, that doesn't sound exciting to me to go study, to become a salesperson. That wasn't exciting. What did I end up doing? I went into sales and I was in sales for a long time. I was in beauty sales, which brought in some of that science background too. Um, but all, with all of that said, there were other things that I really had an interest in, but it was not on that like list of this is what a good job is, or this is mm. what you should be putting your focus and attention on. Yeah, totally. And I got that a lot from my parents, I think, with like, I remember went from a young age wanting to be um, a cook or a chef and my dad being like, well, that doesn't make any money unless you own the place. <laughs> and just like having that in my head. So then you're just like, I, I, I don't, when I was a child, just everything that grown up said, it was just like, oh, okay, well, that just must be the end all be all. Like, yeah. that's just the way the yeah. world is, you know? Um, yeah. So I think I really love Waldorf education for the really just space that it gives children through all of their ages of development. Um, not only early childhood to express really who they are. And my daughter, she'll be six in November. She says to me that she's, um, she's like, I'm not a Waldorf kid. I'm an artist. I was like, well, if you think you're going to be, I obviously don't say this to her, but if you think you're going to be an artist by going to public school, like, you know, I don't, I'm not that there's anything. And I want to be clear here. I don't have a superiority complex over Waldorf education and public school. I would really love to see our public school system on a whole shift yeah. and meet all kinds of children in all different kinds of ways. There's so much in the world, the, the realm of that, that we could talk about completely unrelated to Waldorf education, the preschool to prison pipeline alone. And what I mean by that is from my experience in public school, like you said, with the standardized testing and there, I mean, I have compassion for those teachers and for that sure, system and for the people that are in that system. Um, Cause I really think it's a flawed system and I don't flaw, I don't hold, you know, I'm, I'm nothing against the individuals. Sure. And um, like as a writer from a very young age, that part of me was only nurtured around like writing standardized testing time and when there were other times where I wanted to just daydream and like write characters and little you know um short stories or whatever it was considered off task or disruptive and so those kinds of things can just be for lack of a better word beaten out of children rather than kind of given space to explore them because the system is just not designed to have that much space because they have to get x y and z done in a six hour a day and they have 30 children. So I totally understand that. And I, I aim to give my children a Waldorf education or some sort of private school or even homeschooled approach or whatever it was just so that they could have more freedom around self-expression. That is my goal in 
parenting them through their education. So if someone is interested in this style of education and perhaps they live in an area where there isn't a Waldorf school or it's not something that they could could enroll their their child into, what are some tips that you have or some recommendations that you have from a parenting perspective in regards to incorporating some of the Waldorf approach into the way that you just operate as a day-to-day parent if they can't attend a school that offers yeah. this education? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so firstly, a book that just came to mind that I'm actually rereading, um, especially for like school-aged children, it's called Simplicity Parenting by Kim John Payne. Um, and he was a Waldorf teacher Um And he's also a child psychologist and researcher. And that whole book kind of lays out the idea of simplifying um, the child's experiences and where we see children often struggle through these moments of overstimulation, whether that be overstimulation because they have like five sports to go to after school or, you know, a lot of TV time or a lot of adult conversation or whatever, whatever it may be and how it manifests in children through um, different challenges that, you know, it can look like in your children. Um, So that's one book and really good resource. And then the one thing that I cannot say enough about is um, rhythm, Uh, a home rhythm, a healthy rhythm for your child and for you. For me personally, I think it works really well. Um, Rhythm is really the foundation of one of the foundations of the early childhood um, approach in a Waldorf school. Um, and, and even into the grades as well. And when I say rhythm, I mean, not a, not a timed out schedule, but a flow through the day where the child feels safe because they know what comes next. And it also, Mm -hmm. it gives them a sense of confidence because they know that after they're done eating breakfast, they walk over to the trash can, put their food in the trash can or the compost or, you know, the sink or the dishwasher or whatever it is set up. and then they go do the next thing, they go play. And what I often give as advice for parents around um, rhythm, especially with young children, is to just kind of see what your day normally looks like and maybe journal about it. And then like, what is the like, quote unquote, natural rhythm of your day? And then where could you maybe add something to bring it together a little bit? So the rhythm that we use in the early childhood uh, Waldorf school is... um, a balance between what we call an in-breath and an out-breath. So an in-breath is something that you're kind of calling them into. So that would be um, story time or a puppet show or circle time. And at home, that can look like, you know, you sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or you play a little hand game with them, or um, just, you know, something to just be with them. And it's calling their attention a little bit. And then an out-breath being like, they go play outside or it's just unstructured. They can go, you know, dig in the driveway. (laughs) I'm just thinking about what my kids do. Um, Those kinds of things. And a home rhythm can be super duper simple. Like, you know, you wake up and maybe you have some like snuggle time in bed or you read a book and then you guys go, you drink coffee on the porch and they play in the yard or just whatever it is, having a sense of kind of like what their day looks like normally. um, Or for the most part, because of course we have crazy days that don't go as planned and if there's children of different age, um, I, and I don't mean this as a way of like aiming for perfection, but even just as an, an inquiry process, just to look at, you know, what 
is their day always different or is there some kind of general um, similarity in day to day? Or is there a way that you can offer some kind of rhythm to where they kind of know what comes next? And even if it's just adding in a bedtime routine, that can be or an evening routine that can be a huge um, thing that can help instill this natural um, ability to self-regulate. Um, so the rhythm would be one thing that I really suggest. Um, simplicity parenting. And I thought of one more thing. Honestly, um, a really simple thing to do with children of any age is just to encourage them to get outside without getting in the way. And by that, I mean, just really seeing what comes out of them authentically. And, um, or maybe something you could try on is when your child asks a question like, what is the sun really made of? Or some kind of big thing where you want to give them this really intellectual answer, or it would be easy to give them a really intellectual answer to just be like, hmm, I wonder, or like, what do you think? Or something to take off another adult kind of experience and voice that's just being put in their head and let them kind of have their own because one day they'll learn that the sun is gas and whatever, you know, <laughs> like maybe when they're right. four, they don't need to learn that. Um, and that's just an example. And I'm not saying that if you've ever done any of these things that you're wrong, because I've done a lot of these things. And I'm just trying to offer what I've learned can be really helpful um, in the home. And then also, I think another really fun thing to do is bringing in a nature table. And this kind of like lends into like the spiritual parenting thing too, is like, if you go on a little nature walk or something with your children, whatever age they are, encourage them to like, you know, maybe cut a beautiful wildflower or um, find some acorn caps or whatever little treasures they want to pick up. And then you kind of make like a little altar and it can be very ornate or it can be very simple. It can just be nature or it can be kind of you know, some, something that you've sewn together. And like, sometimes if like if you Google Waldorf nature tables, you'll see an array of things. And yet what I love to do with my children, as far as a nature table is just kind of get them connected to experiencing nature when we're out in nature and seeing um, it in a very reverential way and understanding that it's alive and trying to build that into them from a young age. Um, so I often personify mother nature when like my daughter will just like throw something on the ground. I'm like, Oh, that hurt mother nature's body. I think you could try that again. <laughs> and, you know, encouraging her to go recycle it or whatever. And the nature table is really fun because then when we go on a walk, she'll come back with like a cool bird feather or something and she'll want to add it to the nature table. And it's just a way to kind of bring that into your house. And it's just, it's just fun and lovely. So <laughs> I can I love say it. so much more. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're we're big altar people in mm -hmm. in this on this podcast and in the courses that I offer. We create a lot of altars, and I love that starting that with your children and and creating an altar that's really a nature altar, a nature table. So beautiful. What other thoughts or tips do you have for parents that are considering how to incorporate? spirituality and the exploration of spirituality into their parenting approach? Yeah, so that's really interesting for me. I think what I, so I was raised Catholic um, and I don't want to say indoctrinated and yet I it wasn't much of a choice. It was just like, here you are sure. and you're Catholic. 
Yeah. Um, and so I think for me personally, what I really aim to do is leave my children in choice around spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I expose them to things, I think kind of just by proxy from, you know, practicing it around uh, mostly Zelda just because she's older um, or she has more awareness around it anyway. Um, but she's seen me do like, you know, she's seen me pull tarot cards or oracle cards. And um, I've given her, <laughs> I've given her um, one of my oracle decks before. And she'll, um, I have a picture of her kind of just like holding them with her eyes closed and she'll, she'll pull them. And to her, it's not, it just makes sense to them. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. It just is like, it's not weird. It's not woo woo. It's not, it's just like, oh, like, oh, these are angel cards? Like, cool, let's pull them and see what they mean. Like, it's just, there's no, there's nothing, there's no preconceived judgment or understanding of it. They're just truly experiencing it. And it's really beautiful to just kind of, you know, see her explore. And even just this morning, um, since we moved recently, we moved like a week ago, um, I had some sage and Palo Santo on like the credenza I was like what are those things called (laughs) anyway and so she asked if she could like do the smoke and I was like sure so I just you know I lit the sage for her and she and just by seeing me do it like I spoke to earlier about the imitation she just walked around the house and she was kind of swirling it and like it was funny though because it wasn't just some like flippant thing she took it very seriously she I think Mm -hmm. she from observing me she knows that it's um um an important and sacred thing that I, or ritual that I enter into. So when she sees me doing it, it's not just like, oh, I'm on the phone and staging the house. You know, it's like, here I am, I'm present <laughs> right. and this is what I'm doing. So yeah. I think she, she knew that that is what that moment deserved. And she, she imitated it. Um, and so there's a lot and and then also conversely, like when she was younger, my mom took her to church and she like talks about, Jesus and she has a necklace with a cross on it and what I kind of when that kind of which isn't something that I practice in my house necessarily um and when it comes to that I that is where I really use that kind of like what do you think kind of thing because ultimately whatever I practice I know and I want to encourage her to find her own individual spiritual practice because I think the most powerful thing about spirituality is that it can be a hundred percent individual. Like, of course, there's all these different modalities that exist and we can, you know, make our own little mixed bag of those things. And it's really most powerful when it truly resonates a hundred percent with us often authentically. Um, And so I want her to be able to have access to that discernment rather than judgment, discernment of, what she connects with and how she can express herself and move through the world spiritually because she is a spiritual being and I, she knows she's a spiritual being and not in so many words where she's told me that, but she's often told me that her guardian angel has told her X, Y, and Z. Um, she's, she is very connected. I know she's very connected. And in general, uh, as a Waldorf like teacher, Um, And part of my practice, we really recognize that the young children are very close to the spiritual world. So it's not surprising Mm -hmm. that she has access to communication with these beings. And I personally really believe it. And I know she does, too. 
Um, and I, I try to encourage it in a way to where she feels like it's okay to explore and express and not in a way of like, you have to do this, you have to do that, whatever it is, because being raised how I was, um, and you know, I love my mom and we all were just doing the best we can with what we have. And with being raised Catholic, I wasn't given choice. I wasn't even really given an option to reflect on if that was something that resonated with me or not until I was an adult. Um, and it became more of kind of a rebellion. Um, yeah. And so just, yeah. So just from a young age, I really want to encourage this idea of choice and self-expression with spirituality as well as others, you know, just like I would everything else. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think back to my childhood, we we went to a Lutheran church until my parents got divorced. And then all of a sudden, it was like, it was like a free for all. It was just like everybody <laughs> was trying to just make it. And I think back to that time period. So that would have been from when I was really young until about my parents got divorced when I was 13. So until about age 13. And I think back to what I really loved about the church going experience and how that's influenced what I have explored now as a grown person who finds themselves to be incredibly connected to my own spiritual practices. And as you're, as you were saying, as you were sharing this, as you were talking about the experience of her going to church and kind of finding out what works for her and finding her own way, even as a little young person, I remember being really tuned in and connected to the, the hymns, the really traditional mm -hmm. hymns. And it was mostly the sound that I was really connected into. And after my parents were divorced and my parents were finding new churches and things of that sort to explore, when we would go to church where those traditional hymns weren't present, I felt really put off by, I, I did not love seeing like a man with a guitar and a microphone jamming out, singing, singing, you know, gospel songs in that way. It just, to me, there wasn't a spiritual connection in that. And there had been for me as a little tiny person with the sound from from the hymns. And so now as a Kundalini yoga practitioner, one of the things I love so much is the mantra, the sound. Mm. And it takes me back to that connection I felt from a spiritual experience as a little tiny person through sound. And I find that same connection through sound today. And what the sounds are are quite different in terms of like what's being sung. I suppose they're they're different maybe maybe not even as different as i think now that i'm thinking about it but the 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 attention to connection spiritual connection through the practice of using sound is the same and mm -hmm. i resonated with that then and now i'm a practitioner of it now and find it to be a really important part of my spiritual practice so i think for for young children giving them an opportunity to explore a lot of different approaches and see what they what they tune into is a really beautiful way of supporting them and finding their own spiritual path. Yeah. I, and like, I think the last thing that I would add to that is just that I really want to bring, you know, it's so funny that like all of this spiritual, whatever this woo woo stuff is like 
woo woo because it's not the norm. And yet it, it should be, could be, can be the norm, something that people can like, Oh, you go to church. I go to yoga Nidra or like, I don't know, you know, yeah, like it's yeah, just completely. Uh, um, so I, I really just want to also normalize it to her. So like she knows church and Jesus and, you know, whatever exists. Um, and, you know, her dad's really into stoicism. I'm really into tarot cards and astrology and um, anthroposophy. And so she just sees all these different things. And I just want them to be kind of like not woo woo and everything's accessible and she gets to yeah. decide or they, yeah. both of them. <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's all available. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Okay. I do want to chat with you for a moment before we get into our closing questions about, because I I know it's, it's something that quite a few of our listeners were, were really interested in when Carson and I chatted and I, I shared that with you about the eating disorder recovery process. And, and you today are an advocate for people through, a health at every size lens. And that's really important to you and the work that you do and, and some of what you and Carson chat about on your show. So chat with me a little bit or talk to me a little bit about that. And you mentioned connecting with Carson initially through finding her, her blog and having Mm -hmm. someone you could, you could really connect with that was going through a similar experience. So Give me a little bit of the story around your recovery process and and the work that you're doing today around supporting others through theirs. Yeah. So I, where should I, where do I start? Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I really struggled with my eating disorder when it was 19, 20, 21 and that was like in 2012 is when I um, was meeting and dating my now husband, Philip. And around then is when I kind of cold turkey stopped my eating disorder behaviors and yet still practiced my eating disorder in a subconscious way um, that I've seen a lot of people do because it, we live in diet culture. Um, yeah. And that's another word you'll hear and see a lot of these days is diet culture um, and everything else culture, but also <laughs> diet culture um, embedded in everything. And it it was even back in 2015 when I first got into this work and now still there. And it, it has a, you know, a different mask on sometimes. And I got introduced to Health at Every Size through um, actually through Food Psych, uh, which is run by Christy mm-hmm. Harrison. and. Um, Carson introduced me to that podcast and I just as a, you know, follower of hers. And so I listened to this episode on food psych that was about this cook um, and food writer who was working in the food industry um, and she was bulimic. And I remember resonating with that a lot. I was just like, oh my God, like I'm not the only one kind of thing. And um, I think that's, you know, I was saying this too earlier. I think that's why these conversations really resonate with a lot of people, because when you're in this experience, it can feel very isolating. It can feel very um, shameful was my experience and also just really loaded. And like, I would definitely be alone and judged if I told anyone. Um, 
And after I read Carson's blog, it actually really encouraged me to also share my story and just being someone that, you know, all, kind of always had a blog. Like I had like a Zanga way back in the day and a live journal and all those things. And I've just written my whole life. So for me, it was a really no brainer way of communicating my story. Um, so I posted a blog about, you know, kind of just coming out as someone that was struggling with an eating disorder. And I was terrified. And everyone in my life that maybe thought they knew about it, but then also people that didn't were just, everyone was really supportive and warm around it. And that is what really started my interest in wanting to to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, around then is when I um, transitioned to veganism. And in hindsight, I really used veganism as a further way to restrict. Yeah. And I want to be clear that I know not every vegan person is doing that. And yet for me, it definitely was a way for me to just further restrict my relationship with food. And that's when I was also working in the kitchen still. So this is all kind of, you know, happening at the same time. And when I really, really, really started to recover, I will say is after my daughter was born and I saw a lot of the same patterns popping up um, around restriction and over-exercising and you know, I've been practicing yoga since 2012, but when I first started practicing yoga, it was in a very restrictive, controlling, disciplinary kind of way. And um, when I got introduced to the Food Psych podcast, she introduced me to Intuitive Eating, which is a a book and a paradigm now, basically, um, started by these, um, a dietitian and a therapist, Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli. And they wrote it like in the 90s um, and it's getting more popular now. And what essentially what it is, is eating the way that we're designed to and honoring your your cravings and your your hunger and your fullness and not in a hunger fullness control way, but in a really intuitive, intuitive way Um, and allowing all foods. So like, for instance, you know chocolate I'm allowed to eat chocolate chip cookies whenever I want so I don't my subconscious doesn't feel the need to eat 10 of them when they're around I can leave half of a chocolate chip cookie and walk away and feel peaceful about it because I can have another cookie in 10 minutes if I want or maybe I won't touch it again you know for a week and so that is really where my eating disorder recovery started and Mm -hmm. a lot of dietitians are using intuitive eating to help eating disorder people recover now, which is really um, encouraging because I think it's, you know, it just really brings us back to how, you know, a young infant knows how much milk to drink when they're full or um, there's, it's, un, it's, again, it's unlearning all of those kinds of stories around like what we should eat, what things are good for us or bad for us or what's healthy and unhealthy. And, really our bodies are so incredible and so good at self-regulating if we kind of let them. Um, And of course there are, you know, there are certain things people, you know, do have genuine allergies and all of, you know, all of that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about the, the diet culture minded control around what we are, we've been told people should and should not eat. Insert you know, 
keto, gluten-free, whatever, whatever it is. I don't even know anymore what the thing is. Um, and our bodies really know what we need when we really listen to them. And practicing intuitive eating was the very, very first step of healing um, my relationship with my intuition on a whole. And I really believe that our bodies are neatly intelligent and are communicating to us all day, every day. We're either listening to it or we're overriding it. And I think with food is a really good way to start healing that listening um, because your body will also be communicating with you when you're in a conversation or when you are approaching someone um, or you're around someone, you'll, you'll feel like your chest will, your chest will get tight or your stomach will have a knot or you'll get tingles or like, those are the ways that our body communicates with us. And I really think that's also a layer of our intuition. Um, and that can really help us guide us through our whole life. Um, so like what this work really looked like for me was in 2015, I started a podcast called the way you are project, which is no longer available. So, um, <laughs> and I just interviewed a bunch of, um, or it might be, I don't know. I'd have to see. Um, I have the recording somewhere for sure, but I had a lot of conversations with dietitians and fat activists and, um, health at every size activists. And, really wanting to put myself in a world where all bodies were accepted and really understanding that. I mean, of course, and of course, this is also a privileged conversation because there's so many layers of of that as well as just a social justice movement um, in and of itself. But really that our bodies, you know, every every body is different and is going to look different. It's not like under this fat person, under a certain amount of work and restriction of food, you just unzip and one day you're thin and you're thin forever. Like I, that's mm -hmm. just a really untrue narrative um, that of course, a lot of people I believed um, and I was just seeing so much harm in that. And so for me, I was really wanting to move into this world where health is seen more on a whole, not just physical health. I think when people hear the word health, they often think like either you're healthy or you're unhealthy. And that means physically healthy and health at every size also entangles weight from health. Um, you can be fat and healthy. You can be thin and unhealthy. Those things, you know, that is a really nuanced and complex conversation that a lot of people um, have you, or the, you know, the mass consensus have yet to understand. And I think that's right. one of the goals of this kind of work. So there's so much more in that. And that's a summary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, it's something we could talk about for hours. We really could. Yeah. 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 And I thank you for sharing that because I, I think it is something that resonates with people because it, it, you know, the women that listen to the show, and we of course have all sorts of people who listen to this show, but the women who listen to this show, none of us are immune or exempt from having to have considered our bodies throughout mm -hmm. the course of our lives in some way through, through what we've experienced in terms of you know, peer, peer conversations, all sorts of things from, from society, media conversations, all of it. We've all, we've all had to consider our bodies and how our bodies are talked about in some way. And, and it's a, it's a conversation we'll definitely keep having on, on this show because it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's an important one. And in this conversation around 
intuition and listening to your body, it's, it's a practice that whether it's in regards to food or just knowing how you truly feel, it's something that we all have an opportunity to tap more deeply into. And it's something we often leave out is mm -hmm. how does what is our body telling us? What is our body actually saying? And it is, it is the truest voice of our intuition is what our body has to say. Totally. I 100% agree. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing all of it. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's get into these final five questions. And we'll start with number one. The first one is tell us about an object or charm that is special to you. I was reading these and I was trying to think of something that wasn't this, but this is all I can think of. So try it as it may be. Um, the moon just, um, oh. yeah, I have the triple goddess in negative, um, on, oh my gosh, you can't see it very well. There we go. Um, on my arm tattooed. And I've just in the past few years have really latched on to the archetype and the symbolism and the real moon um, and my connection yeah. to her and um, my own personal divine feminine. So I would say the moon. Yeah. Girl after my heart. Girl <laughs> after my heart. Me too. Me too. The moon is so obviously such a big part of my life. And it's why I teach a course around it. And yeah, so, so beautiful. Okay. Number two, what is a book that changed your life? Hmm. So probably like everyone, um, the alchemist was what I was going to originally say the alchemist. Yeah. And it's so funny because my best friend tried to get me to read it for years. And we have this kind of understanding between her and I, where like, we always say like, you don't get it till you get it. Um, and I really feel that around this book. Like when I first picked it up, I was like, this is just about a boy that has sheep and it's so boring and I don't get it. How is this supposed to change my life? Mia, what are you talking about? And then I read it for the first time like a year ago and I was just like, like mind blown. Um, <laughs> just, I was really finally ready to receive it. And yeah. um, I also recently read um, Bird by Bird, which is by Anne Lamott. And to any fellow writers out there, this is like, this is a life-changing book for my writing, um, Bird by Bird. So I would say both of those actually. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Okay. The next question is, tell me about an experience or moment that changed your life in a profound way. Hmm. So this one is as a fun of an answer, but, um, I had an experience where I stayed at a job longer than I knew I should have. Um, like I had an intuitive knowing that it was time to leave and I over I overrided it I was like no I'll just do one more year at this school and there was a lot of angst and suffering and um, stress and hurt that happened for me and other people because I didn't listen to that when I was supposed to and what I know now is one of the worst things a human can do is know what to do and not do it and I'm really grateful that I have lived that experience so I know what it feels like to abandon myself and not do that again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the listening, the listening. It's so important. Mm -hmm. Listening to ourselves and trust the listening and trust. And 
and then doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Taking the leap when it's time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Okay. What is something that you do for your health and wellness? Um, so definitely yoga and that I'm also part of this community called light your leadership. Um, and there are, um, I don't know what to call them other than exercises that really kind of reprogram our, um, human computer. And it's, yeah, they're called the, um, they're called mind gems and it, it's almost like, it almost reminds me of like tapping a little bit. It's a little bit of that. And there's like some stuff, but that's really helpful for me, um, as kind of like a daily ritual for me. And then of course, always, always, always my yoga practice. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Okay. Tell me about a moment that you knew magic was real. This question is really fun. I loved it when I read it in the email and I I actually asked my best friend, I was like, do you know this for me? (laughs) She was like, um, she was just like, you know this for you, but I, I don't know. So anyway, because I thought it was going to be something else. And what I know it is, is in 2012, I was like a tumultuous 20 year old. And (laughs) I wrote in my journal, like exactly what kind of partner I wanted after having a bunch of just toxic and unsuccessful relationships. And then like two months later, I met my husband, my now husband. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really connect with me for a while. And I went back and like found that journal, I think a couple of years after we had been together. And um, I actually have a poem about this in my book. But I really think I made like, I I always tell people I made him up because I just wrote exactly who he was going to be. And then I met him two months later. And that was right around the time that I was introduced to the secret. you know, take that as you will, but like the very beginning <laughs> of being like the secret, like Netflix documentary, um, yeah. which I know some people have feelings about. So I don't know, but it, at the time it really made sense to me. And it was the first, like, okay, I'm going to try this out. I'm just going to yeah. try. Like, I really have no expectations. And like, when I looked back at that, it was like, Oh, like, yeah. And now I do that and have done that for literally everything in my life. So Yeah. I mean, the secret's a a great gateway into manifestation. It is like, yeah, it is for most people who have some sort of manifestation practice, they gateway in, in some way through the secret, whether they read the book or watched the show, I definitely found my way in through that practice or through that, through that book, and then the the movie too. And then, and then, and then shaped it to be my own, my own Mm -hmm. practice, but certainly found my way in through through that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So Prem, if folks want to find your work, your book, your show, all the things that you're up to, where shall they find you? I have so many things. Wow. Okay. So my podcast that we've mentioned so far with my dear friend, Carson Dupree is called Conscious as a Mother. And it's wherever you get your podcasts. We're on a little bit of a hiatus right now because we're both in the middle of like some big life stuff, but we definitely want to come back for uh, season three and we have lots of good content on there already. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm just at Prim Ormanovich, O-R-M-A-N-O-V-I-C-H. And my book is called Knotted, K-N-O-T-T-E-D. Um, and you can get it on Amazon. And hopefully by the time this comes out, I have it self-published through Ingram Spark so you can get it anywhere books are found. So that's my goal. Um, and it's a collection of poetry and prose, and it's all about my um, 
childhood and motherhood journey and step parenting and all kinds of all kinds of stuff. Um, really just my my baby is that book. Um, so those are those are my main those are the main ways that you can get in contact with me. So yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being with us, Prem. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. It was so fun to get to connect. Yes, with you as well. Thank you. I'll see you soon. All right. Bye. Okay, my friends, we are complete for today. Thank you so much to Prem for joining me. And I want to share this as we close When we have conversations about topics like parenting, I personally recognize that I know nothing. I have not been in the experience personally, and my intention in sharing this conversation around parenting and spirituality and woo-woo parenting and anything else around topics that are not my personal experience is to give voice to those who have experience to share their knowledge with you. As Prem and I were wrapping up our conversation after I stopped recording, she said to me that she hoped that the way she came across in the conversation didn't feel elitist. And we both recognize that having a choice of where your child goes to school, having a choice of how your child receives an education is an incredible privilege. It is a privilege that very few people in this world truly have an opportunity to experience. So that's not lost on either of us. My intention here is to always give you all the different approaches, all the ways that perhaps have been considered a bit taboo, all the woo. So that's what we're here for. I thank you so much for joining me. If this episode resonates with you, please share it. You can find us as always on Instagram at yourwoowooBFF and I'm Andy at WeeWeeGirl. I wanted to also share with you all, we have retreat dates set for the fall. So for those who are interested in joining us on a fall retreat, it will be here in California on the coast. More details to come about the exact location. The dates are October 21st, which is a Thursday through October 26th. You'll have a nice long weekend in coastal California. We'll be getting way into the woo. We'll be experiencing kundalini and human design and of course yoga and exploration and holistic living. And we have so much fun. I can't wait to be back together with a group of women again, this time in coastal California. Tulum was amazing. If you've missed that episode, our recap episode from Tulum, go give that a listen and then join us here in California this fall. With that, we are complete. I will see you again for another episode next week, another interview next week. Until then, have a beautiful, beautiful day, week, until I see you again. Much love.